I'm Gregory Berg. Over the years, I have had the pleasure of interviewing a number of different cartoonists. And one of the most interesting conversations was with Wiley Miller, responsible for the award-winning comic strip Non Sequitur. This interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2005. Enjoy. And I'm really excited uh, for the next few minutes to be able to speak with uh, one of the most uh, uh, admired of cartoonists, Wiley Miller, and his uh, wonderful comic strip, which dates from the early 1990s, called Non Sequitur, which uh, has garnered all kinds of awards. And in fact, uh, its very first year of, of, of national publication, it was named, uh, I, I believe, uh, the best comic strip of the year, and uh, really an unprecedented honor to be given to, uh, to, to such a, a, a new strip. But uh, Wiley Miller actually has a, a long career to his credit and has done a lot of interesting things uh, aside from non sequitur. And I'm excited that we can talk about it, about uh, the various books which collect some of his best work, including uh, the latest book, I believe, called Lucy and Danae, Something Silly This Way Comes. And uh, Wiley Miller, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, and you're, you must be easily excited to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am excited to talk with you. I really, really, truly am. And um, your your story is is an interesting one. I'd like to, uh, as probably most interviewers do, uh, I'd like to get some sense of where all of this comes from. Uh, first of all, do you remember, uh, as a youngster growing up, that uh, cartooning or drawing or both or neither uh, were important to you? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I think that's pretty much something that all uh, cartoonists have in common. That it's, it's something that, well, I can only speak for myself, I guess, on this, but it, it's something you uh, that I've been doing for as long as I can remember. There, there's just this um, drive, uh, this passion. I guess there would be some, in, in any of the arts, but like a musician, when yeah, there's just something that's in your head and you just uh, you know have to play the piano or whatever. Uh, for for us cartoonists, uh, you know, all kids grow up you know reading the comics or getting comic books and all that. Uh, but normal kids, you know, finish reading their the, the comics or their comic book and and put it down and go off and live the rest of their life. You know, <laughs> do some play baseball or whatever. Uh, we weren't like normal kids. We, we weren't just satisfied with uh, reading the comics. We had to draw them. You know, we'd, we'd take our comic book and uh, you know, go down to our room and you know, trace them, copy them, or you know, just to, to see how it's done and then and, and to create our own and all that. So, uh, and it usually gets us into a lot of trouble down the line. <laughs> <laughs> what did those earliest efforts look like? I mean, for you, what did you spend most of your time trying to create? Oh, God, I... Hard to remember. <laughs> just, um, I'm sure my mother probably has <laughs> somewhere to trunk uh, my old uh, cartoons that I would cringe at if I saw again. But uh, uh, I, I remember drawing uh, these uh, elaborate uh, stick figure battle scenes and things like that. And I remember one of my favorite things to do was to uh, draw uh, Superman with a hole in his chest. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> just, uh, you know, that, that's part of the cartoonist makeup too is, uh, is irreverence even towards our own kind I know that you studied art in college uh, 
What were your aspirations at that point? I mean, were you hoping to do something like well, you was, ended up doing? Or well, yeah, it was still very much uh, uh, cartooning, but I was, uh, you know, really got steered towards the uh, the fine arts. Uh, you know, I helped directed by uh, uh, my high school art teacher, who who is a uh, not the usual you know, arts and crafts uh, high school art teacher. He was a pretty serious watercolorist, and um, yeah, he. He would spend uh, a good deal of time with uh, the students who he saw as, as being serious and, and uh, who had abilities. You know, he didn't waste his time with the others, and I was one of those uh, fortunate ones. And then he would he'd always be admonishing me. He'd say, you know, "Stop drawing those damn mad magazine-type cartoons and do serious art." So he would uh, really get on me about doing, uh, you know, serious painting and so forth. And that's. Uh, you know, how I went to, to college, I went to an art school, the Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, uh, studying the you know, fine arts, of, uh, uh, you know, majoring in painting and printmaking and you know, minoring in drawing. And, and this is what I uh, uh, try to explain to young cartoonists uh, trying to develop, that all of the rules of uh, line and composition that apply to a fine painting uh, apply to a cartoon. Uh, cartooning, the art of cartooning, is a form of abstract art. And before you can abstract something, you need to learn the fundamentals. And then this will just give you that uh, many more tools to to work with, uh, you know, in developing uh, cartoons. But always related uh, uh, <clears throat> the art aspect of cartooning uh, to that of, uh, of vocabulary for a writer. Uh, that the larger your vocabulary as a writer, uh, the more tools you have to work with to express yourself. Uh, the same is true with the artwork. The, the better uh, artist you are, the, the more you can communicate through the art, uh, the greater tools you have to communicate uh, with the reader instead of relying just on wordplay. Hmm. So as you studied art in a serious way, at the back of your mind, was this hope maybe that you would be able to uh, earn your living as a cartoonist yeah, somehow? Yeah, by this time, um, I, I was uh, steered more towards editorial cartooning. Uh, I grew up uh, you know, through high school during the Vietnam War era. Uh, my high school uh, was in McLean, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. Uh, my, my school bus so went by Bobby Kennedy's house every morning. <laughs> so. It was a uh, very volatile time and a very volatile place, and um, uh, I just, and I um, was our high school uh, newspaper's uh, first uh, cartoonist, and uh, it, I just naturally got steered uh, into that more serious realm of, of cartooning and you know being weaned on the Washington Post at that time and, and her block, and uh, later on back in California with uh, Paul Conrad in, in the L.A. Times. Uh, during the Watergate era, um, so that that's where my roots really are <coughs> in uh, as a professional cartoonist is um, having you know something uh, to say and to find a way to to say it uh, you know, sometimes in a very silly way. If we were to look at your those early editorial cartoons, would they bear any significant resemblance to? Uh, to non sequitur, I mean, visually uh, no, or otherwise. No, not, not the not the early ones. Um, they they were more you know still in the development stage where you're trying to find your uh, uh, 
find your niche, find your style, and all that. So back then, it was uh, you know, a lot of emulation of uh, of other um, editorial cartoonists at the time. You know, Pat Oliphant and like I said, Herb Locke and Conrad and Jeff McNelly. And, uh, you know, those were very strong influences uh, at that time, and and that's how all cartoonists develop. That you um, uh, emulate the uh, cartoonists whose work you really admire, and uh, you kind of get it all into a mishmash of your own, and out of that comes your own style over a period of several years. And and, and just as you you know start you grow older and and are reading more and and learning more of. Uh, politics and the political scene and becoming more aware and finding ways to, to comment on it. Hmm. By the way, I seem to recall that somewhere on your resume is Playboy magazine. Yeah. Can you uh, clear that up for us? Yeah, that was, those came out of uh, when, uh, when I was living in uh, Santa Rosa, California at the time. I had uh, uh, been the uh, staff artist and editorial cartoonist at the uh, newspaper there and then later on at the San Francisco Examiner. Um, and while there, I, I would uh, hang out uh, with my friends. Uh, they, uh, uh, it was a, kind of a, a cafe grill bar that was across the street from the newspaper. And uh, I would, while there, people would always be asking me to you know, draw a little cartoon for them. And I'd be drawing these uh, silly cartoons on cocktail napkins <laughs> with a ballpoint pen. Yeah, they'd be bleeding all over the place. So. Um, so I just told myself, look, if you're going to be in here all night drawing cartoons, at least bring in decent paper and a pen and, you know, have fun with it. So I did. And it, uh, they quickly took on a life of their own. I, I called them my bar tunes because I had absolutely, they were just freewheeling, fun, silly things, mostly about the people around there and events going on at the time. Um, and I ended up with this big collection of them that I had absolutely no intention of doing anything with. And uh, then my, uh, my, my wife, we just uh, gotten married. And as a matter of fact, we met through our cartoons. You know, she was looking at them and said, who are you? Um, so long story short, she said, uh, you know, you should send some of these to Playboy. And I said, you know, you're right. Why don't I try it? And so I did. And they bought uh, several of them right away, which was unusual uh, for them. They generally don't buy things right away from something they don't know. And um, so I started uh, doing that. We're speaking with Wiley Miller, best known now for his uh, comic strip Non Sequitur, which has won a number of awards. Uh, it's actually not your first uh, syndicated comic strip. Your first comic strip was something called Fenton, uh, which I remember, uh, and, and some of our listeners do as well. Uh, it, it seems to me that that, that uh, came at an, at an interesting point uh, in your life. I mean, that, that you were prompted to create a comic strip... Uh, uh, because of, of other th yeah. doors being closed. Right. Um, this was uh, back in the uh, early 80s at the uh, uh, height of uh, the recession at that time when uh, newspapers were having a great deal of difficulty. Newspapers were folding all over the country, and uh, the rest of the newspapers were making drastic cutbacks. Uh, this was when I was working at the Press Democrat in Santa Rosa. I was, um, I, I was the art department <laughs> there as a staff artist and editorial cartoons. My work was syndicated by that time, my editorial work. And um, uh, so I, I felt I was uh, pretty secure since I was the, consisted of the entire art department there. 
Well, when they uh, came time for our newspaper to have uh, cutbacks, they decided to cut back in the art department as well. <laughs> Since I was the art department, that meant I was out of a job. So I got laid off like so many others in that era. Um, and uh, just you know, stayed, stayed along floating by doing my uh, syndicated uh, editorial cartoons. So I needed to find a, a new outlet since there were uh, no jobs available in the country in the newspaper business. Uh, so that's when I set out to do my first comic strip, and that was Fenton. Describe the, the process by which you were able to get Fenton published. I mean, that is no simple matter. Uh, no, it's not, uh, especially at that time when newspapers are cutting back and not uh, buying much. But, but even then, we had a much stronger uh, more competitive newspaper industry than we do today. And uh, uh, my, my mentor in, uh, in cartooning in general was uh, Brand Parker, who was the uh, creator of uh, The Wizard of Id. Uh, I met him when I was in high school at, a, at an arts festival thing where he was giving a, uh, a talk, and, uh, and he helped me later on getting my first job in, in North Carolina, in Greensboro, the newspaper there, uh, doing editorial cartoons. And uh, so when I was out of a job, I got in touch with Brandt again and uh, uh, sent him uh, my idea of a comic strip I was working on, which I'd originally been working on with another syndicate, and we had a falling out uh, on that, on the development of it. Uh, so he uh, set up a, a meeting for me with, with uh, it was at that time, it was Field Syndicate. It's, uh, uh, you know, that changed names over, over the years at any rate. It's now part of King Features now. And uh, uh, so I had, by that time, a, a great deal of, of work uh, done on this comic strip, like eight months' worth of work done on it. So I uh, uh, got in my car and uh, drove down <laughs> to the syndicate. This was in California. I was in Santa Rosa, which is northern California, and the uh, syndicate office was uh, down in southern California. So I uh, packed up all eight months' worth of stuff and uh, headed down there and uh, uh, showed it to them. And uh, there was kind of a, uh, a log jam at the time when I was uh, showing it to uh, who was then the, uh, the manager who decided on new features. Uh, he really liked it, but he wasn't sure if he could sell it to editors. And uh, the president of the syndicate uh, wanted it, but he didn't want to overrule you know, uh, this other guy. So I had kind of a, a deadlock there. So they called in the sales director. And when the sales director walked in, I almost fell over. He was the spitting image of Fenton, <laughs> the lead character. Wow. And then he just took one look at it and said, oh, I can sell this. And so that's what sealed the deal. Very good. Yeah. You, of course, uh, have gone on to, to, to great things with, uh, with Non Sequitur. I want to ask you a little bit uh, about how you developed non sequitur and its unique look and uh, uh and 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 also the, the the wide range of 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 your work now uh i mean it it really uh defies easy categorization tell tell us how you developed it and well, that that's exactly uh how i wanted it uh, to be um yeah we uh, fast forward now to uh uh, the early 90s and and the new recession. Uh, by then, uh, I, I ended Fenton when um, when the recession led up in the 80s, and uh, I got the the job as the editorial cartoonist at the San Francisco Examiner when uh, uh, the cartoonist there uh, 
had retired. Um, so I'd, I'd been there for several years and uh, doing uh, quite well. And you know, my work was again syndicated and uh, was winning awards and so forth and so on. So once again, I thought I was fairly secure there. Well, a new recession hit in the post-Gulf War period, and uh, I, I tried to learn from the past <laughs> in my personal life. And uh, so I see the recession hitting, another bad one, and newspapers uh, folding all over the country and all uh, uh, newspapers laying off uh, reporters and everything else. And so this time I wasn't going to wait for the axe to fall. I said, okay, time to create another comic strip and uh, you know, have an exit strategy <laughs> to go out on my own terms rather than uh, on somebody else's terms. So uh, when I set out to uh, create a comic strip, oh, and at the same time, my, my wife had just gotten accepted to the uh, University of Iowa's uh, uh, writing program for her postgraduate uh, work, which uh, uh, hopefully many of your listeners might know that it's a very prestigious, uh, world-renowned uh, program. So it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be accepted to that. So I needed to find a way that uh, we could uh, leave California and move to Iowa, where I could be making a living. But, uh, well, the only way to do that is uh, to, to create a, a comic strip. But I knew that it had to be a successful comic strip. It couldn't be something that just had, you know, the usual fare, um, and to be one of the, you know, pack, you know, in, in that kind of safety of mediocrity. Um, so when I was going through. Uh, trying to come up with a comic strip idea is going through the usual machinations of, you know, what uh, what kind of character do I want, what setting, and so forth. And, and I realized that, you know, this was just all, you know, kind of generic, bland, already been done stuff. So I just sat myself down and got to thinking, what was it about uh, the great strips of the past, the ones that, that really became successful? Uh, you know, what did they? There must be something that they all had in common. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of you know going back to you know Little Abner, Pogo, you know, Doonesbury, you know, Calvin and Hobbes, Farside, all of that, and all of these obviously completely different strips from one another. But I figured they must have all done something in common. And it suddenly struck me that what they did was that they came out with something that was completely different from what was being done at their time and that it came from their gut. They, they didn't manufacture it. They created something that was uh, giving them voice rather than you know, pandering to what they think editors and readers might want. They just put out there what they were thinking, their point of view, uh, without any regard to if it would sell or not. So that's when I said, okay, this is what I have to do. Just you know, forget what I think syndicates want, forget what I think newspapers want. I have to do what I want. And that's when I realized I'd already been doing it. <laughs> I'd been doing it with my Bartoon. I had done it uh, with uh, with Fenton. I had uh, done you know, all the, the magazine uh, gag cartoons I'd done for Playboy. And I had been doing it in my editorial cartoons. You know, by that uh, period in, in my editorial career, I had stopped doing the usual editorial cartoons of you know, doing the you know, looking at the headlines and, and doing some riff on. Uh, uh, whatever topic is going on, you know, like uh, doing some cartoon on, on economics. You know, what the hell do I know about economics? 
<laughs> I just be you know pandering. Uh, so I had started to do a lot of cartoons that just meant something to me personally, and I found that those are the cartoons that the that I got the most response on from the readers because it was something the readers could identify with as you know getting down to to their level, not on this um, lofty Washington level. Um, so I, I noticed later on, I'd, I'd come across in some of my older cartoons from my last year of working at the Examiner, and I realized just how similar they were to what I was doing in Non Sequitur. Uh, so anyway, Non Sequitur just was a combination of all my work and experience as a comic strip cartoonist, as an editorial cartoonist, and a magazine gag cartoonist, just all melded into one strange format. So it had its own voice, its own unique point of view, uh, and was just uh, entirely different from anything else out there at the time. Because it was so bold and uh, and so new, was it a hard sell? Actually, yeah. Um, all of this, again, this was at a time of a very bad recession in uh, the early 90s and post-Gulf War era that uh, newspapers uh, were really hurting, and they just weren't buying anything. So all the syndicates were, were holding back. Uh, all the syndicates were uh, looking for something that was safe. Yeah, they didn't want to take any chances. So all of them had the same response to it. They, they all said, oh, we, we love the writing and we love the art, yeah, but we like to see a central character. And so I would kind of mess around with that, and I, really, and I very quickly realized, I said, no, you know, having a central character completely destroys the foundation. Uh, of the strip, because the whole point of this was to be able to strike out in any direction. I wanted to uh, take away as many of the boundaries uh, to a comic strip as I possibly could to expand uh, the universe uh, for uh, for my creative outlet. Um, the the traditional comic strip, uh, you know, with the cast of characters and it's it's placed in the, in a certain setting and and, and time. Um, that puts some restrictions on it. That your your average comic strip has, you know, three to five years of uh, fresh material. You know, by, and definitely by by the fifth year, you've pretty much used up your entire scenario, and you end up repeating yourself and just doing you know more formula uh, kind of gag work just to fill out the day. I'm doing you know seven cartoons a week, 52 weeks a year. It, adds up, you know, how much material you have for, uh, for a certain setting. Now, uh, one way to uh, alleviate that, that problem uh, with uh, Charles Shulston and what Gary Trudeau did, that you know, they just kept expanding their cast of characters. Like uh, Doonesbury started out with uh, two or three characters. And now it has a cast of, geez, about 100. <laughs> mm. uh, Peanuts was the same way. It was just you know, Charlie Brown and, and a couple of others, and he just kept expanding Expanding on the number of characters as, as over the years, uh, you know, to stave off the, the burnout factor. Uh, even even a feature like The Far Side had the burnout factor because uh, he was hemmed in by the, the style of, of the of the cartoon. Uh, so I wanted to get rid of, of of all of those boundaries. I didn't want to be hemmed in, um, and so I established that very early on that uh, it just anything could happen, and that's why I named it Non-Sequitur, because when I first started to send it out to the, uh, uh, to the syndicates, I, I had all this material, and, but I didn't have a title, 
I was thinking, what the hell am I going to call this thing? <laughs> you know, I didn't want to do anything stupid like Wiley's View or anything like that. Um, and, and then I was reading uh, an article on uh, an interview uh, with Bill Griffith, who's the creator of Zippy the Pinhead. And the uh, writer described um, Zippy as, as a series of non sequiturs. I said, that's it, non sequitur. That, that pretty much describes what I do. You know, that uh, you know, today's cartoons can have absolutely nothing to do with tomorrow's cartoon. And, uh, and I figured that would also appeal to uh, uh, the editorial level of, of readership. Hmm. Um, so that's how it all got sent out. If, the, if there is something that we immediately think of with non sequitur in terms of, of, of the number of, of, of strips, it would be these single panel images which you create so memorably. And I want to ask you a couple of things about those, in, especially uh, in terms of visually what you do. I think for many of us, one of the reasons non sequitur just leapt off the page at us in the midst of all these other cartoons is that because unlike more typical cartoons where we're seeing everything straight on from the front. So often with those single panel images in non sequitur, we are viewing things kind of from off to the side, sort of at a diagonal, sometimes from above, kind of looking down. I mean, you are really playing with something as as basic as perspective, and because you're such a good artist, you're able to really do that. Talk for a moment about the importance of that and, and, and maybe the challenge and, and, and fun of that for you. Yeah, this, this comes from two sources. Um, the first, uh, uh, again, my uh, influence from uh, Brant Parker, that's the Wizard of Id. Um, when I was getting advice from, from him of just learning what uh, a cartoon is and what a cartoonist is, uh, he was the first one who actually explained to me what a cartoonist is. You know, most people think of cartooning as, as drawing, and it's not. Uh, he explained to me that uh, a cartoonist is first a writer. Like any writer, you have to have something to say. It doesn't have to be earth-shattering, but there has to be a point uh, to what you're writing. Uh, secondly, you're an editor. You want to edit out as many words as possible. Um, you have to get the idea across in, in a comic strip in like seven seconds or less. Uh, then third, you're an artist. And that's where communicating through the art uh, really uh, comes to play. Uh, and he, he explained to me that the best written cartoons are the ones without any writing in it. And that always stuck with me. And that's, uh, that carried through uh, mainly through uh, my editorial work. Uh, editorial cartoons have always been very visual in nature and using you know, the hyperbole and metaphor uh, for getting... Uh, to comment on uh, on a hard issue in an abstract manner. Uh, so this is how I carried it through uh, with non sequitur. And again, that's, as you pointed out, made it uh, different from everything else on the editorial page. Um, was communicating through the visual that if you, you know, uh, analyze, if you study it, that you'll see, you know, the captions that I, that I have in the, uh, in the single panel cartoons are fairly innocuous. Uh, what, what makes them work is in conjunction with uh, the visual. And that, that's where the impact is in, in cartooning. It's a very uh, uh, international style of cartooning. Uh, that The visual has a far greater visceral impact on the reader than the written work. It's kind of like 
um, you know, writing is, is kind of like a, watching a, a Polaroid picture develop. You know, like when you're reading a column where a writer is trying to paint a picture uh, with his or her words. And, you know, gradually that idea comes into focus into your mind and say, oh, okay, now I get it. Uh, whereas uh, the visual, whether it's a photograph or a visual cartoon, uh, has more of a direct pipeline uh, into the brain that all the information is right there and it has a, a jolting impact uh, that just can't be uh, imitated with, with the written word. So uh, where the, you know, writer tries to paint a word, uh, tries to paint a picture with his words, uh, we write words with our pictures. And, and so the, uh, that's why I stuck with that and tried to maintain that uh, in non sequitur. And, and that's when the, uh, the, use, the use of perspective uh, comes into play, that I wanted to give a more observational point of view. Um, and also that by, I realized that by raising uh, the camera angle, uh, to get to get that observational point of view, uh, used up that horizontal uh, comic strip dimension. That thing, and that was the other aspect of, of uh, non secondary being a single panel, is I did it in the comic strip format rather than the usual square panel format, so that it could be anchored on a comic page. And so that so you, kind of that wide, narrow rectangle as opposed right, to so the taller square, like a, a wide screen, uh, you know, like watching a movie. And I realized that by raising the camera angle, uh, getting that to, uh, of that panorama, um, that it used that space in a more natural manner rather than use, doing the usual uh, eye-level uh, shot that you'll see in the rest of comics. Um, so what I set out to do uh, was to stop whining, as all of us cartoonists have been doing for decades now, about uh, how small comics are run. You know, ha having worked in newspapers and having deal dealt with editors over the years, I realized editors aren't going to change. They're not going to give us more room. So rather than complaining about it, um, I set out using my uh, skills in design to use that space that, that we're given and to make the most of it. And so by using uh, perspective, and even to the, uh, a simple device of using the art to define the boundaries rather than drawing a line around the cartoon, but that uh, it's the use of white space and expands the look of the cartoon. So uh, some people think that my cartoons are bigger than everybody else's, but they're not. It's the same size. It's an optical illusion. Hmm. One thing that you also do visually that I think is worth talking about is that uh, and, and I think in some respects this is a little bit daring perhaps, is that uh, often in these single-panel illustrations uh, there will be something very subtle there, something or, or, and or something very small uh, in, in the image, which is very, very crucial, and which at a glance you, you might miss. I mean, like right. it might be the feet of someone who's fainted and, and, and all we see are their shoes in, in the doorway way off to the side, but just at a glance, you might even just miss that. Um, uh, I, I wonder if, if that strikes you also as being uh, daring to, to use visuals in a way that's not just in your face and, and overwhelming in its impact, but to, to play with the visual in, in a uh, way that I, is subtle. Yeah, I, that, that's 
that's exactly what I was going to say. That, that I prefer to go in, in a more subtle manner rather than uh, uh, trying to be so you know, blatantly obvious about everything. Uh, the, the approach I've always taken in my work from, from the very outset is to assume the intelligence of the reader, especially given the realities of today's uh, newspaper readership um, and, and the dwindling numbers of people reading newspapers today, that I operate on the assumption that anybody left holding a newspaper in their hand today is literate and intelligent. Uh, my reasoning for that is uh, unintelligent, illiterate people don't read newspapers. So I'm not going to pander uh, my cartoons to that lowest common denominator. I'm not going to dumb down like the rest of media uh, because I, I know that we're not going to get illiterate people back. They aren't interested in reading. So I'm not going to try to pander to that group that isn't reading the material. So I, I try to raise the bar and uh, to shoot at, at a higher level. And the response I get from the readers uh, really uh, bears that out, that uh, people quite often thank me for not dumbing down the work and, and assuming that everybody's an idiot. You have some interesting... Uh running characters such as uh, Homer and uh, Obvious Man shows up once in a while, Lucy and Danae. Um, tell us what sort of fuels your interest in, in doing that sort of work on non-sequitur, apart from the uh, single-panel uh, one-time shots that, that we've been talking about right. up until now. Again, that, that goes back from the very inception of the feature in that anything goes and everything goes. Um, this is a way to feed all of my uh, creative interests, uh, rather than just uh, uh, zeroing in on one aspect of cartooning. There's a whole world of cartooning out there, and a whole uh, and there's an abundance of ways of expressing yourself. And to hem yourself in into just one particular style is the formula for burnout. Uh, if I had done just the single panel cartoons, I would have burned out just like Gary Larson did. Uh, so I wanted to expand that and, and to feed the other areas. You know, I have an interest. I love cartooning. I love different forms of cartooning. And um, you know, sometimes I just want to be plain silly. You know, other times I want to be more serious. And, and sometimes there are issues and, and topics that are better dealt through, uh, through dialogue, through that of uh, continuing characters than through the single panel cartoon, and vice versa. So I do both. Um, uh, so over the years, I've just kept creating uh, different uh, characters for uh, to, to best express myself uh, for what I wanted to do at that time. As a matter of fact, right now, uh, I'm working on uh, a new book. It's going to be uh, a collection. It's going to be a treasury of my uh, Sunday uh, work. And the way I have it broken down into chapters is uh, focusing on all the different uh, continuing characters. I had, and I, and I frankly didn't realize just how many different ones I had until I was putting this book together hmm. and, and writing a little piece on, on each one of them and, and how I came about uh, creating them. As you work, are you working every single day for a prescribed period of time uh, yeah, that, that, that's the nature of this business, is that uh, you're always uh, working. Uh, and you have to think of it, that um, 
you know, the work appears every day. Uh, so that means you have to have work done for every single day. And we work on a longer lead time than most people realize. Uh, uh, people are used to you know, the, uh, the newspaper, uh, the material being in there, of you know, what happened yesterday. So they think, you know, we just drew these cartoons yesterday. Now, uh, the daily cartoons are done weeks in advance, and uh, the Sundays even longer in advance. But the, the point is, is that they have to appear every day. So if you're doing just one cartoon a day, you're just treading water, <laughs> and you'll never get away from the drawing board. Um, so I, I try to do at least uh, get at least two cartoons done a day, or at least one Sunday. Done. So it, it's uh, it, it's an it's not that the uh, deadlines are immediate, like say for editorial cartoons. Uh, the difference is that the comic strip deadlines are incessant. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter how much work you send in; you have to just keep sending in more work. Yeah, it's kind of like working at the post office, and <laughs> why people post office go crazy. Hmm. It's it the, just by the the incessant demand. Right, and so it's not for the faint of heart. I mean. Uh, a lot of people who dream about uh, doing a comic strip, but uh, not really fully understanding what it takes to do a uh, comic strip. And uh, most comic strips, even the ones that, that do get syndicated, most of them fail within the first year. Uh, the people getting into it just realize uh, all of a sudden just how difficult it is to produce that volume of work and to maintain the quality and to be doing it on deadline. Hmm. Like uh, owning and running your own restaurant. Yeah, you know, right, exactly. Everybody thinks, oh, wouldn't that be great to have my own restaurant? Okay, here you go. Here's the keys. <laughs> <Try it. laughs> Do you get much chance to read the rest of the, 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 the comic pages of, of the newspaper? I mean, do you uh, really get to watch much of other people's work and enjoy uh, it? Oh, yeah, I'm you know, just like every other reader. I'm pretty much limited to what uh, my local newspaper carries. So I don't get to see everybody's work. Let's finally talk about um, where you see all of this going. Um, are you hoping that uh, in perpetuity, uh, non-secretary is going to go on since you've set it up to uh, remain ever fresh? Yeah. Um, yeah. Car- cartooning in general is a profession that you most people don't retire from. You know, there are those exceptions like uh, Bill Watterson and. Uh, Gary Larson, uh, Burke Breathed has retired twice, and he's back again. <laughs> but um, it's it's usually a profession that uh, you find us dead at our drawing board. <laughs> so, hmm. um, it, and it, because that, that's the nature of it. it. It's it's an art form. It's not just a profession. It's not a job. You know, you don't get hired for it. it it's a calling, and it's just something you do. Um, something you'd be doing if, even if you were you know, had you know, some other way of making a living. Um, so I, I have uh, no foresight of, of, uh, of ending non-secular. I, I, I suppose that uh, as I get older, even older than I already am, that uh, it becomes more difficult and it would be nice to uh, be able to retire from the you know, incessant deadline pressure of doing a comic strip and just doing books, but um, for now, I, I have I don't foresee uh, leaving this any time in the near future. Hmm. Well, and it's interesting. I think all of us have maybe learned a little something when either a, a, 
uh, uh, someone like uh, a Gary Trudeau goes on an extended sabbatical or or uh, the career of someone like Charles Schultz comes to an end um, or, or Gary Larson hangs it up, uh, the <laughs> cries of anguish across the country from fans of, of, of the comic strip in question, that really helps us understand the, the impact that, that this actually has in people's lives. I mean, probably far more than even the artists themselves might, might ever hope to believe. Yeah, and that's part of the irony of, of all this um, in regard to uh, editors and newspapers. Um, as I mentioned, that uh, uh, comics have been consistently shrinking uh, over the last uh, couple of decades and uh, a loss of importance uh, to editors in general uh, as the newspaper industry itself has waned. Um, when we had a vital competitive newspaper industry where uh, uh, comics were very important to them because they, they knew uh, how it would attract readership and hold readership. But now that everything's a one newspaper town, there's there's no competition left, and so uh, editors now resent comics more than anything because they don't they really don't want to deal with it, and they don't understand its value um, in uh, in holding readership. But, but at the same time, yeah, this is a real schizophrenic uh, manner that editors have with comics. It's uh, one thing that they they don't want to to mess with it because they know when, when they make a change in the comics that they catch hell from the readers for making a change. Um, so they understand uh, how the, the powerful uh, attachment uh, readers have to comics, and at the same time they, they dismiss it because they, they don't like that readers want the comics more than they want the news. <laughs> Interesting. A closing thought I have in front of me one of one of two non sequitur books which I own and enjoy. I think it's a relatively early collection called Dead Lawyers and Other Pleasant Thoughts. That was the, uh, the my first collection. Okay, um, you certainly uh, you certainly take uh, your 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 fair share of 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 pot shots at at lawyers. If you had an unpleasant experience with a lawyer in your past? Do you know of anybody who has had a pleasant experience with lawyers? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's the thing, that the older you get, the more you uh, have to deal with lawyers. And and I found that it was a very universal um, theme. And and I don't take pot shots at lawyers. Uh, I don't do lawyer jokes. Uh, what I do is I satirize the legal profession. It, it's a fine line, but a, uh, but a line nonetheless. Um, I really take uh, my shots at the legal system and how that legal system is very attractive uh, to sociopaths. And those sociopaths find sanctuary uh, with a law degree where they can say and do virtually anything they want without repercussion. Um, you know, a really good example of that was uh, how everybody got to see how lawyers work firsthand with the, in the O.J. Simpson trial. And with the amount of uh, nonsense and BS that they were throwing around in that trial and saying, how can they get away with just just making up stuff <laughs> and, and putting it out there as though it's fact and they're never held accountable for it. So it's, it's very frustrating for the average person. Um, and this, you know, through the 90s, this was really, it really was a huge issue. Uh, you know, 
legal system and, and lawyers in general and, and the hatred of lawyers. And uh, so I just, uh, you know, played off on that, uh, just as Scott Adams did in Dilbert on, on the uh, uh, corporate community. Um, it, it came to a point where the American Bar Association uh, in the mid-'90s uh, did a, a, a very extensive uh, research and survey uh, on uh, the attitudes of people towards lawyers. Uh, they, they wanted to really kind of figure out what the root uh, of, of the problem was, of why lawyers had such a, a horribly bad reputation on a national basis. And what their, their own survey showed was that the people who had the worst impression of lawyers are the ones who had the most contact with lawyers. <laughs> Hmm. So that got to bore everything out. And I always uh, found it uh, funny that a great deal of my mail uh, from people who loved these cartoons were from judges. And that's when it just suddenly struck me. They said, well, of course, who has more contact with lawyers than anybody else? It's judges. <laughs> I, judges I, I would hear just, I'd just get these wonderful letters from them and telling me these uh, <laughs> These uh, you know, horror stories of what they have to, what they and their clerks have to deal with with these idiot lawyers, and uh, so they, so I've uh, sold a lot of these cartoons uh, to judges, and they're hanging up in chambers all around the country because nobody hates lawyers more than judges, and uh, ironically, they're all former lawyers. Hmm. Something to think about, as as always with non sequitur. Again, uh, uh, non sequitur is is the comic strip which appears uh, regularly, and. Uh, uh, the latest collection of uh, Wiley Miller's work is uh, Lucy and Danae, Something Silly This Way Comes, published by Andrews McMeal. And um, Wiley Miller, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk about your outstanding work as a cartoonist. And best wishes to you. May Thank non sequitur go on for a long, long time. I hope so. My interview with Wiley Miller was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2005. A controversy erupted back in 2019 over a non-sequitur comic strip that appeared on February 10th of that year. Hidden in the lower right-hand corner of one of the panels was a nearly illegible yet unmistakable profane message aimed directly at President Donald Trump, utilizing the F-word. Because of the controversy, a number of newspapers dropped non-sequitur. Wiley Miller eventually explained that he had written that insult into the comic just to vent as sort of a cathartic exercise because of something he was upset about regarding the president. He had intended to remove that insult before submitting the comic strip for publication, but ultimately neglected to do so. After issuing an apology and explanation, a number of the newspapers that had dropped non sequitur agreed to resume publication of the strip. If you are interested in seeing Non Sequitur, it can be viewed online by going to www.gocomics.com.